Welcome to the Learning Capacity Podcast, brought to you by LearnFast Australia. You're with Colin Klupik. In this episode, we hear Dr. Martha Burns, Professor of Communication Sciences and Disorders at Northwestern University, discuss the new science of learning. This talk was given at the TEDx Enola event on February 1, 2012. It involves neuroscience and understanding individual differences in children. Most importantly, it's that educators don't just teach, they build brains. Let's hear what she has to say. Well, it's delightful to be here with all of you and all of the virtual people out in the world um, and in the state. Uh, it's My job is to kind of try to pull everything together. You've had some marvelous speakers today, fascinating speakers, um, with all sorts of different perspectives. And I'm going to try to pull it together for you and then finish up with the struggling student, the child who is having trouble learning to read, the child who's having trouble learning math, um, not the math STEM child, um, the child who is, for whom school does not come easy, but doesn't, we don't have any known reason why school doesn't come easy. Um, and it, we're going to talk about this, as you've had all day, as the new science of learning. So to encapsulate what everybody's brought to you today, what everyone has had to say is, there's a new way of thinking about learning. There's a new way of thinking about teaching. And the new way of thinking about learning and teaching involves neuroscience. It involves understanding individual differences in children, which you, we've had several discussions of. It involves curriculum, which we've worked on. I'm going to call that the what of teaching we've worked on as educators for the last 25 years. But it also, as the last, as Nathan said, it, it also involves technology, interaction, game playing, making learning, getting to learning a different way, and making it more interactive, making it more motivating. And I'm going to try and summarize a lot of what you've heard today in that respect. So the new science of learning is incorporating all of these disciplines and allowing us to understand every single student and focusing on how every student learns, not how all students learn, but to think of students individually and think of their individual learning capacities. You've had enough lectures on the brain. I'm not going to go through too many of these areas with you again. You've had lots of them. Um, but keep in mind that it is the left hemisphere that we educate for the most part. So the right hemisphere, as we heard, is very important for social skills. When we have children on the autism spectrum, when we have children who have the STEM children that we heard about just a few minutes ago, um, one of the difficulties they have is with right hemisphere capabilities of what we call theory of mind, being able to Think about how other people think, being able to um, put yourself in someone else's shoes. And that's a big part of the social world. And actually, it's what is learned through game playing. It's one of the major things you learn through game playing is what is that next person's move going to be? Where do I want to go now? They want to win as much as I do. What can I do? What can they do? Game playing is a wonderful way to build the right hemisphere. But most of education deals with left hemisphere skills. And the left hemisphere skills are reading, mathematics, um, geography, uh, all sorts of sciences, and they involve symbols. And ultimately, what we are getting to in neuroscience to a great extent is how the left hemisphere deals with symbols and children who have trouble learning symbols, whether it's learning the letter that goes with a sound if they're going to read or learning the 
numeral that goes with a concept, if it's on your fingers, as you heard today, but the concept of number, what we call the number sense, that dealing with symbols gets to be very problematic for some students. And that's because symbol learning involves integration. So actually, when we're looking at the left hemisphere of the brain, right here, where the parietal body sense comes together, where the occipital visual capabilities come together, and where the temporal auditory sensations come together. At this angle, and it's so-called the angular gyrus, that is where all of the symbol systems are integrated together. And that's one of the last parts of the human brain to mature. And because of that, we start teaching children when they're five, and we don't stop until they're about 15 or 16, and that's when that part of the brain reaches its ultimate maturity. So education is brain building. It is designed specifically to, to develop these capacities of symbol use to a great extent. And then, of course, a fascinating topic of problem solving and coming up with um, the eureka effect that you heard earlier, but the, coming up with novel solutions to problems you've never, never seen before, which is really actually very involved with the frontal lobe, as you heard. So when we're looking at students who are struggling to learn, what we're starting to understand with fMRI, and you've seen lots of fMRIs today, and you've learned a lot about the, these different capacities and how, the, how we're actually looking at at something called the bold signal, blood oxygenation. So we're looking at the parts of the brain that are active in a given task. But when we're looking at learning and education, the architecture that supports learning is pretty fundamental in the left hemisphere, that supports at least most symbol learning, all right? Not necessarily problem solving in the more, in the sense of the eureka moment, but certainly usage of symbols and being able to use symbols and manipulate them easily. And that architecture is this basic network. And what you will notice here is it is at the top, it says the object naming network, meaning that it's an architecture of language. And it's the architecture that a child develops in the first four years of life. What we're starting to understand then is that when parents talk to their children when parents play with their children and game playing is very important. The architecture that's being built by talking is this left hemisphere architecture that supports most of education. The, what the architecture the parents build with game playing is actually right hemisphere social skills. If there's anything we can communicate before we get to the educational process to parents to help them to prepare children to do well in school, it's talk, 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 play, play, play with your children from birth to four years of age. Don't worry about getting them in all sorts of, of activities. Don't worry about, I, I was at Starbucks not so long ago and a man in front of me was saying, talking to his friend about how the coach said that, that his child really had good potential for soccer, and he was real excited about that. And then it came out, as we were in the long Starbucks line, about 10 minutes later that the child was three. The, the point is, we, we're worrying too early as parents about, about skills that are going to mature in the brain much later. And the, the architecture that supports learning actually comes through very 
very relaxed interactions of parents and children. And the, what you'll see is the same architecture right here that we saw a minute ago that supports, whoops, sorry, that supports language, which involves the top of the temporal lobe, this kind of frontal lobe region here that's very important for sequencing and grammar and production of words. It's a part of the brain that talks, but it's also the part of the brain that sequences sounds in words, helps a young child to learn to say animal instead of aminal. Um, and this hub here that kind of is like the engine of the brain that drives this network and gets all the areas to be firing together. That same network is very active in mathematics. That same act is very, network is very active in all musical um, notation and musical reading of music. It's very active in scientific um, investigation and so on. So. As the brain builds, as educators build the brain, what you will start to see, and I'll, I'll show you some more slides in a few minutes, is that you start to see these very complex pathway systems emerge over, superimposed on, this basic architecture that started when the child was two and three and four, just by interacting with adults in playful ways, in, in conversational ways. So what we need to understand a little bit more in terms of how this, this architecture gets started, and you had some discussion on this, the whole discussion um, of, of Dr. Sedina on, the, um, on dopamine and neuromodulators, is the chemistry. What, what drives the brain to develop all these pathways? What drives the brain besides just stimulation? And we heard a lot about second language learning and how Bilingual exposure is very good for young children. It is. It's wonderful for young children. So is single language exposure actually very good for young children. But what is the component? We, we heard a lot about um, how if a child is really motivated, then what we see with that, with that student is that they'll continue to learn and they'll continue to work on that problem when they're doing another problem, when they're doing another task. So what underlies that? And what underlies that is neurochemistry. And I want to take it a little further than dopamine with you and explain how that can be incorporated in the classroom and is with effective teaching. And I'm going to call that the how of teaching. So the what of teaching is building on this network, this symbolic processing problem solving network of the left hemisphere. But the how of teaching is, did the teacher, was the teacher effective? Did the, was the student motivated? Did the student enjoy it? Did the student, is the student continuing to think about it after the class is over? It, are they continuing to work through the problem? And that has to do with the chemicals in the brain. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. The other thing I want to explain is that when we're talking about the brain rewiring itself and you look at these, this huge highway system that develops during the educational years. This is just from math alone, mathematics alone processing. When you look at this highway system, what you're actually looking at is long fiber tracks here that were laid down very early in development, within the first year or so of development. I call them super highways. They're axonal fibers. They extend from neurons. They are myelinated with a fatty substance, and that's an insulation. 
and that allows an electrical stimulus to be conducted. And unlike the highways here in, in Pennsylvania and the highways all over the, the country that get worn down when we use them, the opposite thing happens in the human brain. The more you use the highway, the more you practice a skill, the thicker the myelin gets and the better you get at that skill and the faster it goes. So education isn't just about teaching new things and making school interesting. It's also about practicing what you've learned over and over and over and over again so you get faster and more efficient and more effective at it. And, and teachers, how do teachers do that? How do they keep students motivated to keep practicing? Um, and that has to do with neurochemistry. So what we have in the tip of every axon, at the very tip of this long highway that sends information, is we have little bubbles. They're called synaptic vesicles. And they're little bubbles that contain chemicals. And some of those chemicals are excitatory. And when they're released, what happens is they draw, they attract a dendrite from another neuron that's never had a contact with that axon before, they attract that dendrite to suck up that chemical, and that is a new connection. But some of the, some of the chemicals are inhibitory. They actually, de they actually keep that stimulus from um, attracting another dendrite. And you have to be, to be able to pay attention, and we learned about how important attention is from Dr. Zadina and how Dr. Neville found at University of Oregon that if you just train attention, it has lasting effects in students over long periods of time in learning. But if you are paying attention, you want to be able to pay attention to the relevant information, what the teacher's saying, and be able to ignore the thing that the little boy's doing next to you. And so you need both inhibition and you need excitation, and they need to be balanced. And teachers are a big part of drawing the student in, getting the student to know this is relevant, this is important, this is what you have to pay attention to. Please ignore everything else. Um, and that has to do with neurochemistry. You learned about dopamine. Dopamine is, is the save button of your brain's computer. Every time you make a new connection, if dopamine is released, then that new connection is more likely to make it through the night. So every time a teacher does something encouraging to a student, reinforces them, or makes the, the activity fun or interesting or exciting, to a great extent what's happening is dopamine is being re released, and that's solidifying that knowledge. That's helping that, that student to hold on to it, to, to be motivated, to keep thinking about it. But there's more to education than dopamine. We have other neuromodulators. We have acetylcholine or acetylcholine, you can pronounce it either way. Acetylcholine is the neuromodulator of attention. And when a teacher walks around a room and looks at a student's paper and puts her or his hand on a student's shoulder, says, good work, Bob, or just walks around the room to make sure all the students are with them, as opposed to sitting behind a desk, just kind of having workbooks be done and not really moving around. Every time a teacher's active, every time a teacher's dynamic, every time a teacher's moving around, that increases acetylcholine. And when you increase acetylcholine, you get these neurons ready to make new connections. It's like saying to the brain, this is important. <laughs> oh, 
Okay, this is important. Pay attention because this is what you're going to be learning today. That's a how of teaching. And that's the difference between a dynamic teacher and a teacher that has the same content, but it just isn't having the same effect. The students aren't seeming to grasp it as well. And then the third neuromodulator we know about that's very important for education and very important for, the, for learning is norepinephrine. You all know norepinephrine. You don't know you know norepinephrine, but you know it because it is the it is the neuromodulator that's upregulated when a student takes Ritalin or Concerta. It's in the drug methylphenidate, which is the drug that we give to many children with ADHD. But norepinephrine is naturally upregulated, naturally increased in our brains when we have something new. Novelty, human brains love novelty. We love new information. You all are addicted to learning. That's why you're here. Think of what you've done. You've taken a day, you've come, and you've given up one whole day to learn all this new information. That addiction to learning is very human, and what you're getting is norepinephrine. And norepinephrine is a very powerful neuromodulator. I call it the, wow, is that cool neuromodulator. Wow, is that interesting. Now, you, can you imagine if you took Ritalin? Every one of us would benefit from Ritalin because the whole world would be, wow, what do you know? Look at that white thing there. That's really cool. So does it enhance attention? Yes. But teachers enhance it all the time. The teachers that you remember the best are the ones that took the education and made it that, wow, is that interesting. I didn't know that. That's really cool. That's what science labs are all about. That's what solving a new kind of math problem is all about. And when you combine those neuromodulators together, what you end up with then is this powerful ability to increase learning capacity and efficiency. And we can help teachers with neuroscience to know how to increase the how, how to improve the way they teach, as well as what they teach. All right? And as well as the methods they use, or the, the, the um, electronic media that they use. We can also make, bring in that capacity to wow the students, to keep them interested and to keep them motivated. When education works, this is one of the major fiber tracks that's built in the brain. It links the limbic system that you heard a lot about, that emotional center, with the part of the brain that listens and pays attention, with the part of the brain that handles symbols, with the part of the brain that deals with number sense and science, and with the part of the brain that's able to talk about it and write about it and, re and tell it back or, as you heard, retrieve it. This huge fiber track is the fiber track that educators build. It's a fiber track that parents don't build, they prepare a child for, but it's what educators build. And it depends upon the earlier levels of development that are occurring when parents are interacting with their children. So one of the things we as educators have to do is help parents to understand how important it is that they talk to their children, read to their children, play with their children. Turn off the TV. Turn, don't worry about buying the newest video. But actually interact with your child and build that child's brain to prepare it for school. That prepares the child for the language, 
that then supports all additional learning. These early stages then are critical to building that architecture that the child needs. Here you're actually looking at a three-month-old baby listening to its mother talk. And the mothers have very strange ways of talking. We used to call it motherese, then we called it parentese, to be more politically correct. Now it's called caretakerese, because we don't want to discriminate in any way. But when adults talk to babies, they have funny ways of talking. And it's like this. Yes, you do. All right, that's strange, right? You don't talk to a one-year-old that way. You don't talk to a two-year-old that way. Motherese changes, parentese changes with each development of the child, with each stage, with each new fiber tract that's developed in the brain. Humans have this way of knowing what the baby's interested in or the child's interested in and adjusting the way we talk. So if a mother is talking to a two-year-old, she's more likely to say, or like let's say an 18-month-old, do you want your cup, your cup, or do you want your bottle? Bottle. Do you want your bottle or your cup? Repeating the same salient word five, six, seven times and exaggerating the sounds. But mothers don't talk that way when their baby's three. And this unique capability of knowing what the baby's interested in and what the three-month-old is interested in is intonational contour, and it is not yet able to perceive sounds and words. And so what's happening is mother gets rid of the sounds and words, exaggerates the intonational contour, slows it down, and just is feeding that baby's brain exactly what it needs. We need to encourage parents. We need to help parents understand how important this is. Okay? And as you heard earlier, Patricia Cool's research that showed when children are exposed to foreign languages with a real human being, when they're six months of age, they learn the phonemes of the foreign language as well as they learn the phonemes of their native language. They learn the speech sounds. When babies are exposed to it on a TV or a video, they don't learn anything. Nothing gets in. I don't think parents understand that. I think they think, oh, they're learning from watching television, and certainly there are good educational programs for young children. But you probably know the American Academy of Pediatrics is recommending no TV at all, no screen time for children under three or two, because it's the interaction that seems to be so important. This is the way the brain builds itself. It builds maps. It builds maps of sounds first, the sounds of the language, in the temporal lobe, and then the sounds are sequenced into words, and then the words are sequenced into sentences, and then the grammatical endings are added onto that, and that's all very systematic, and that's all very ordered, and there are regions of the brain that are specifically mapped for each of those skills. And the only way they get mapped is through exposure. It doesn't happen unless the child is exposed to the language. So that by the time you have students in high school, we can look at the size of their vocabulary, and we can literally measure the, the size of this symbol part of their brain. It will be thicker, it will be bigger, and you, it's almost perfectly correlated with vocabulary size from school. We can also look at the trajectory of how different parts of the brain emerge during the school years. And these are the important parts. This is the symbol center of the brain, and this is the prefrontal lobe. And notice some of the more basic sensory motor skills like talking and moving and jumping and running 
are almost fully developed by the time a child enters school at five. And then the brain prunes or fine tunes those areas. But educators build the frontal lobe, the problem solving, the, the way of handling new situations and this ability to use symbol systems. There is a slight decline in adolescence, um, very interesting little decline. It's as though nature's saying, find a girl, find a girl, find a girl, you can think later. And then it takes <laughs> off again, okay? <laughs> Especially the frontal lobe. But, Learning a second language is easier when people have this basic architecture and we know that when there is a second language learning that the brain is, looks very different. When someone has two languages that they're exposed to that they're bilingual and they were exposed before they enter school, this, this part of your left hemisphere in the front that talks is actually double coded. The neurons are as good with one language as they are with the other. This person will never have an accent. They'll never have to translate. When we expose someone to a language later on, they have two very separate distinct areas. And it, that's always going to have one language usually a little more dominant than the other, even though they might be bilingual. But the last thing I want to end with, the last idea, is that if, in fact, the brain is a use it or lose it organ. And by the way, it's a use it or use, lose it organ your whole life. So that what children are good at is what they do. And what adults get bad at is what they don't do. So all of us need to know the importance of stimulating the brain and providing the brain with a kind of information that it needs to build itself to do well in the world that we're in. But one of the things we've learned from Patricia Kuhl's research, uh, sorry, from um, Hart and Risley's research, is that when children come from lower socioeconomic homes, below, below the poverty line, they enter school with a 32 million word gap. They're exposed to 32 million fewer words than children who enter school from your homes. Children who enter school from your homes, by the time they've entered school, have heard 45 million words. That's 45 million more opportunities for the brain to have wired itself to do what it needs to do in school. And when students start out with poor language skills, they don't close the gap. It actually gets wider. And that's because we depend on that language to educate our students. All right? So in just in summary here then, when we're talking about education, and when we're talking about the brain and all the wonderful things you've learned from neuroscience today, we need to keep in mind that there is a developmental requirement for a student to do well in school that depends on experience. And that that experience guides the student learning all the way through. And that that lack of experience in some children can be very detrimental to the way that they mature later on and handle school. And just one last thought, reading changes the brain. It makes, it makes a lot of these areas bigger, and you've seen a lot about reading and dyslexia, but mathematics changes the brain. But this is a wonderful article that was done by Stanislas Dehen um, that was just published last year showing that these are the regions that are developed differently and more, more um, in a more sophisticated and more agile way in people who are good readers than people who are not good readers. So educators are not teaching only. They build brains. Thank you.
You've been listening to the Learning Capacity Podcast brought to you by LearnFast Australia. To find out more about LearnFast, visit learnfasthome.com.au where you can also subscribe to the blog. Until next time, bye for now.